Hello and welcome to These Are The Things, the podcast about podcasts, about social media, about whatever's going on in the news or whatever I've been watching or what you've told me to watch over the past while. This is the first one of 2021 and uh, how's it been for you? It's been a bit of a weird one, hasn't it? I somehow thought that, yeah, we'd step into 2021 and the virus would have gone and all the conflict in the world would have eased and we'd have all been in this lovely little bubble and everything would be perfect. Well, I don't know where you are in the world, but that's not what it's like for us here. So um, it's been a bit of a funny one. And usually in January, I try and make goals and resolutions, which I always break. But I didn't even bother doing that this year because it's just such a drag it really has been and um I was toying with the idea of doing the January I knew I wouldn't survive vegan January but just trying to go off meat but to be honest with you despite what Greta Thunberg tells me and David Attenborough and those who know best I really need my comforts around me at the moment and I scrapped that I scrapped dry January. Uh, I just, I think it's, a. I think this January, January 2021, I think it's about going as easy as possible on ourselves. And that is what I will be bringing you for this week. So these are the things that I've been reading, watching and listening to over the past couple of weeks. So the first one actually is an article that a friend sent me. I um, I found last week really, really rough. Um, the figures, the COVID figures were very high here. The death rates were very high. There was just an air of doom and gloom all around. And I was, I was picking up on it. And to be honest with you, I was doing the thing that I promised myself I wouldn't do, which was watching too much news and getting involved in too much current affairs. So a friend of mine sent me an article, it was a BBC article, and it's about the difference between self-esteem and self-compassion. And self-esteem seems to be where we put our value on our achievements, whereas self-compassion is really something as basic as talking to ourselves in a way that we would talk to a friend. Because I know the way I talk to myself, if I spoke to friends that way, well, I wouldn't have any friends. So it was a fascinating article and I have put the link in the show notes because I think many of you will be interested in it. And it's also influenced on the type of people I focus on on social media at the moment. And they are not the type of people who are going to be harping on about um, about saving the planet. I know that is urgent, um, but I'm not putting that weight of responsibility on myself this week um they are not also not the type of people who will indulge in three hours of meditation it's about a little can go a long way at the moment and the first person i'm going to talk about on instagram i have mentioned her before it's julie samuel and i think i mentioned her while i was talking about elizabeth day's uh how to fail podcast Julia is a fascinating person. Actually, listen to her on Elizabeth Day, but she also has a 
fabulous Desert Island Discs episode as well, because she's had an amazing life. She came from a very privileged background. She is a member of the Guinness family. She is also, was also a friend of Princess Diana. She is the godmother to um, Prince George, uh, which is quite the compliment to be paid. But more than anything, she is a fascinating person in herself. She is an incredibly gentle force. And I think for those of us who watch a lot of social media or a lot of people, particularly on YouTube, people who seem to speak at a ferocious pace and seem to edit out every little breath in between, it is such a joy to watch Julia because she is a psychotherapist and she sees the importance of silence and she gives others the confidence to be silent. She does a lot of Instagram lives. Um, she's done a few really interesting chats with uh, Tildia Winkleman. Byron E. Gordon was fascinating. Um, Trini Woodall, all of those people, but she is very gentle, very subtle, but she doesn't go on with psychobabble either. She is a very normal person, but more than anything, going back to the article of self-compassion, she talks about the shitty committee, and that shitty committee is usually, for many of us, is in our heads, and she gives us coping skills on how to talk about that. In fact, just this morning, at the time of recording, this is officially Blue Monday, um, which is the darkest day of any year, the darkest Monday of any year, um, emotion emotionally for many people but it's 2021 so we're feeling that force more than usual and she's giving some very nice coping skills of how to deal with that so I really really highly recommend following Julia on Instagram also the link will be in the show notes a little bit of a distraction that happened last week and there's just sometimes it's nice to get annoyed with a bit of nonsense that's going on in the world and I certainly went down a rabbit hole of the American Vogue cover of Kamala Harris. Um, I remember my first Vogue, the first Vogue I ever bought, and I, I can still smell it, the excitement of having expensive perfumes in a magazine. I had it for, I only very recently to figure it out, actually. Sorry that I didn't, actually, the smell of the perfumes, the Chanel and the Dior, I think it was Dolce Vita by Dior, it was in that magazine, and I can still smell it to this day. It's an iconic magazine. Kamala Harris is an iconic person. Kamala Harris becoming the first vice president of the United States, woman vice president of the United States, and the first black vice president is an iconic moment. And this is such a missed opportunity. Now, Anna Wintour has come out to explain the cover. For those of you who haven't seen it, I think most people will. There was controversy because the Vogue cover was leaked initially and we heard from Kamala Harris's team that it was not the photo that she had approved. Um, the first, there were two Vogue covers because it is such an iconic moment according to Anna Wintour because she, she hadn't thought this out before she had done it. Um, is Kamala in her Converse trainers, black jeans and a black blazer. She is a casual dresser but she is a very stylish woman. The problem that most people have, this is casual beyond belief. In fact, it looks like Kamala has walked in off the street, 
they've they're doing a check for her height to get the lighting right because the lighting does not look right on this Vogue cover and she is not taking the Paris pulse down she is doing something that we're all told not to do she's clasping her hands tightly she's pulling her elbows in instead of out and she's making herself small none of this is her fault it is just something that she doesn't look entirely comfortable in front of the camera they also have a second cover which is Kamala in her powder blue Michael Kors outfit which basically looks like a boring LinkedIn profile picture. I totally understand what they were trying to get. They were trying to get the spontaneous nature, nature of Kamala. She is relaxed, she is casual, she has that California vibe about her. But you can do this, you can achieve this while still making her look powerful and still making an interesting cover. It's just a really missed opportunity. And I'm sorry, I think loads of people have talked about this at this stage, but I just look at other covers. A, this is The photograph itself is actually taken by, um, taken by Tyler Mitchell, who was one of the first black photographers to work on Vanity Fair recently because Vanity Fair had not used black photographer. This has all just come out since the Black Lives Matter movement and he has taken some have described it as controversial but they are interesting and they are powerful beautiful uh, portraits of uh, Senator AOC. Uh, he also did the famous Harry Styles photo that started a lot of conversations going. Harry was the first male cover a Vogue. At the moment, I am so starved for a bit of glamour. I don't care who wears a dress. I just want to see a nice dress. That was a really interesting cover of Vogue. It was just such a missed opportunity. It's bland. It will not stand out. It, this is an iconic moment and they have just, they are so far off the mark with this. And I think the book has to stop with the person who's getting the big paycheck and that is the creative creative director of Vogue Anna Winter last I looked I think 2013 she was on about 2.5 million dollars a year don't think it's too much to answer a few questions of how badly this has gone wrong but she's a very powerful figure so I don't think her job is at any risk why because not alone is she the creative director of Vogue she's also the chairperson of Condé Nast I think American Vogue in particular needs a bit of fresh and creative influence in the way that Edward Enifel has been to British Vogue. If you look at the covers he has done recently and somewhere where it's, you don't have a lot of prep, where he used the NHS nurse, that lovely girl from Belfast, she was literally just coming off duty. She was in a pre PPE robe and they took a really powerful and beautiful portrait of her for the first non-model non-celebrity to be on the cover of British Vogue. Also did a beautiful cover of Judy Dench as well earlier in the year. It was just it's just frustrating and I think it's more frustrating because of the iconic moment it is and we just want I'm screaming out for a bit of glamour. I'm screaming out for a bit of escapism. We could all do with that at the moment. And I got that actually by uh, going on Netflix to see something completely different when Pretend It's a City popped up. And this is just, oh, it's just what I needed. It is um, 
it's about Fran Leibovitz and you can must kind of give yourself a pat on the back when you're Fran and say I must be doing something right when Martin Scorsese doesn't just make one documentary on you he goes back to make another. Her, his first documentary was public speaking but this is so off time but so timely at the same moment because it is about Fran and her relationship with New York City and this is all of course made pre-pandemic so we see New York in the chaos that New York can be but the, the energy and the vibe that New York has so she comes right back and she talks about the New York that she knew in the 1970s the New York that was literally falling to the ground literally I mean, buildings were just falling down and it wasn't even a controversial thing. You just hear something go down. Well, that's just such and such a building that has fallen down. But Fran herself is such a wit and she is such a character of New York. You, even though she was born and raised in New Jersey, but she is the person that you imagine going to one of those New York parties that we saw in all those 1980s movies with Woody Allen, him. Um, but she is that typical New York character, the type of person who doesn't care what she says. She's also that person who is not involved in social media. So she's not constantly looking over her shoulder to see how she offended someone. She speaks as she thinks. And it's so refreshing to go back and discover that people could go to dinner parties, have different points of view have different different political opinions and still get on and still form interesting and entertaining conversations if you want to see new york if you are like me as i mentioned on every podcast missing city life if you just want to learn more or just sit and watch this woman she is incredibly funny the only thing that i really wish that they showed and Mar Marty, I'll call him Marty, Marty actually advised her don't let people into your apartment, don't let people into your car. Nice advice as a friend, as a director I think he would have given us all a wonderful treat in letting us see Fran's apartment because she talks about she talks about losing out in real estate, the only person has missed out in New York real estate and selling Andy World paintings two weeks before he died. Um, not the wisest, not the best at flipping property or art. Um, reminds me of myself. But she, um, she has such style, and it's very masculine, and it doesn't vary from decade to decade. But I think her father was a draper, so she has an innate eye for tailoring and for stitching, and she mentions constantly her love of furniture and her love of art so for that I'd love to have seen inside her apartment just nosy I'm just a nosy person but I'd love we you sense because you're sitting at a dinner table with her that you know her so I would have loved to have seen that part of her life but it is seven episodes long I completely binged but they when I say seven episodes they are each of them are just 28 minutes long so it's easy to get this in in either an evening or two evenings I think and it's just an absolute treat it really is and what I had intended to go on to Netflix to watch that night and I was so glad that I saw Pretend City because it gave me an energy to deal with the next film which is Pieces of Woman um 
this is garnering a lot of interest at the moment because um, I think there is definitely when award season wakes up, if it ever does, uh, we will definitely see Vanessa Kirby pick up an award for her incredible role and powerful portrayal in this film. This is not for the faint-hearted and I think you should prepare yourself for this because I think this could be very, very, very triggering for a lot of people um, who have been in this position or if you're pregnant or if you've recently had a child, I think this may not be for you. Um, the first scene is very, very um, controversial at the moment because when first within the first 20 minutes, there is a 20 minute um, birthing scene, which is incredibly raw and real and powerful, both from Vanessa Kirby and Shia LaBeouf. Um, it's, it, it draws you in. And what interestingly it does, this is a film about grief. Uh, I'm not giving away any spoilers there. It is a film about grief, but strangely, they don't dwell on the immediate aftermath of that grief. Instead, it pushes you forward to a few weeks after, and it is that awkward moment of somebody walking back into their life and how everybody else around you feels so awkward. And that is done without any dialogue whatsoever. Um, oh, I did say I wanted January to be uplifting. This, If you're looking for somebody, something to lift you up in January, this is not the mo the film for you. This is a film that is telling rawness of the grief through Vanessa Kirby's character. It is incredibly emotional, but I think it's an incredibly important film and something that needs to be done. Um, certainly miscarriage is talked about more recently uh, with Meghan Markle and Chrissy Teigen and the aforementioned Elizabeth Day has spoken a lot about that and the conversation is so important and I'm really glad that it's happening and this film really opens that conversation up further and it possibly will those eyes that were on the Vanessa Kirby character as she walked back into work of people just not knowing what to say hopefully the conversations will open up and they will teach us to deal with those situations um it's powerful it's incredibly moving will i go back and watch it again no i don't think so um i have got i i've seen what i needed to see from it it is a brilliant piece of art but it is not escapism in the way that so it is not escapism and something that I need at this moment in time, but it's there for you and it is on Netflix. Um, and I'm the type of person who, who does kind of delve into every single film that's going to be up for something during award season. So um, that's why I delved into it, but it's done and I'm glad I've seen it. But that's it. I'm recording from home. So if you're hearing lots of banging, that's what that's going on. It's uh, I'm not in New York. Um, it's just an incredibly noisy house. Podcasts, and uh, it's nice to give somebody a dig out. You know, I don't think you'll ever have heard of this fella, uh, Louis Theroux. 
yeah, he's uh, left the old documentaries behind and he's tried to start something new. And with the help of BBC4, he's managed to dig out a little podcast for himself in his bedroom, like myself. Just Louis and a microphone and a few celebrities. But uh, yeah, <laughs> there was a few snarky comments from some podcasters when Louis Theroux decided to go podcasting. But listen, we can all do it. And uh, yeah, literally, we can all do it. So Louis doing it. And he's on his second series now. And it's just, it's very Louis Theroux. And he is hilarious. And um, first series, he talked to Boy George and uh, Lenny Henry, which was really, really powerful. Um, Lenny spoke openly about his his dealings with race and coming through show business in the 70s and 80s in the UK and Louis, uh, Lenny got a lot of slack actually from people uh, his own community for characters that he portrayed when he was starting off but he also shows the vulnerable position that he was in and he starts the conversation that we all talk about the importance of needing to see people of colour and black people on our screens but he also highlighted that it is also really important to have people black people in power behind the screens so that when somebody like young Lenny Henry is feeling vulnerable and he has been asked to do things that he would actually want to say no to he needs somebody there for him who can help him through that and it oh god it's I think that podcast is almost two hours long, but my God, he goes through everything and he's had an extraordinary life, Lenny Henry. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it's really beautiful. In this series, he speaks to um, Ruby Wax, which is awkward to begin with. Um, Ruby can be awkward and since she has actually, she's, deals very honestly with it she felt that Louis had stolen her career um in the documentary world and looking back I can see how she feels that but um it certainly starts off with, as a very awkward conversation but he faces up to it right at the beginning which I think was exactly the right thing to do and he also has a brilliant one I'm just thinking of it now with Oliver Stone wow that was powerful and at time, times awkward, Oliver schools him on quite a lot, but it's um very interesting, really, really interesting. So that oh God, you know, I'm there. There isn't a huge amount out there, but that's what I've been de- delving into as much as I could, and I'm just kind of grabbing onto any show, this story, or anything new that comes my way. And last week, a story that Nicole Kidman was going to replace Kate Blanchett in a film about the life of Lucy Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz really grabbed me and I thought this was actually perfect casting. I couldn't actually understand really initially um, why Kate Blanchett was getting the part other than she does seem to be the go-to person of offering every role, female role that comes around. Um, but I think Nicole Kidman is a far better match. She's those very delicate features that Lucille Ball has. She certainly has the colouring. Um, well, both Kate and Nicole have the height. Um, but I, I, I would personally think that Nicole is a much better match. But what I hadn't known, that this was going to get 
become even a much more interesting story was that unbeknownst to us, somebody else had their eyes sat on this role and didn't bother hiding it. Apparently Deborah Messing has always wanted to play Lucille Ball and I kind of felt for her because we've all been there, haven't we? We've all thought we were going to get that part or that promotion at work and you know you're right for that role or that promotion at work. You've done the, you've done your time, you know what you're up for. And then somebody comes from Australia and decides to take that role. And that can kind of, it can eat away at you, can't it? But maybe one way we could deal with it is the way that Deborah Messing was done with. She um, seemed to scroll through Twitter, finding anybody who uh, thought that she was better for the part than Nicole Kidman, and retweeted them. She spent nearly all last week scrolling through Twitter saying Deborah Messing is a much better actor for this part than Lucy than Nicole Kidman. Deborah Messing is so perfect for Lucille Ball. What are the directors thinking? What are the producers thinking? Get Deborah Messing. She spent her time scrolling through Twitter and retweeting. And I mean this happens all the time and it certainly happens to actors all the time because Anyone who spent as much time as a week in show business knows that being right for the role has nothing to do with you actually getting the part. Being Nicole Kidman and knowing that people will actually put money on the table to pay for this film means that you are going to get the part. But it's kind of nice to see Deborah um, hasn't picked up the message in that. Well, maybe she has, but she just doesn't, didn't bother hiding any of this. And as I'm looking for any distraction whatsoever in this world. Uh, <laughs> it was a lovely distraction last week. But um, the film itself seems interesting because Lucille Ball will never be forgotten. But I think just the impact that she had on comedy and women on television could be very forgotten. But we also forget the time. And apparently when they went to make Lucille Ball, the um the premise for the TV show itself was actually drawn up by Desi Arnaz, Lucille's husband. And when they went to the producers, they said, rather like going, we want Deborah Messing, and the producers went, No, we'll get Nicole Kidman because we can fund this. When they thought about actually bringing this to America American screens, they thought that there was absolutely no way no way that Americans would buy this because they couldn't understand how an American girl, a wholesome American girl, would be married to a Cuban man or a Cuban band leader was exactly the way they phrased it. And Lucille put her foot down and said, well, the American girl has married the Cuban band leader and this is how it's going to be done. And she refused to sign the dotted line until Desi was cast and could produce uh, the Lucille Ball show. She went on, their marriage broke up. And I think this is what the film is going to be about because Javier Bardem, at the time of recording, who knows how this is going to go, at the time of recording, Javier Bardem and Nicole Kidman are signed up to play this. Um, it was a very, very volatile relationship. And... Uh, it was a very public divorce because they were the most 
famous couple, television couple in the world at that time. And divorces didn't really happen in 1959 in American TV or middle class America anywhere. So it was very, very um, infamous and uh, scandalous uh, um, news story at that time. So I can't wait to see that. And I'm certainly have put my, um, I've tried to find a Lucille Ball uh, biography because it certainly seems like a fascinating character. So anyway, that's that. Thank you for tuning in. Um, I I have actually been delving into the data analytics, so it's lovely to see people popping up from all over the world listening to this, and I am absolutely chuffed. But please comment. I'd love to hear what you're listening to, what you like hearing about. Um, tell, me, tell me what's going on in your part of the world. Uh, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram. I'd love to hear from you. And follow and comment on whatever format that you're um, listening on as well, regardless of whether it is Spotify or uh, however you get your podcasts. And because it also helps other people to find the show when they're looking for a show like this. So anyway, thank you. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.